You're listening to Recognise Red, the podcast, where we talk about the cultural impact of Me Too and the work that we still have yet to do. I'm Bea Hartshorn, and I'll be talking to campaigners, academics and creatives about the projects that they're working on to fight for gender equality. So today's guest is Laurie Nunn, creator and writer of Netflix hit series, Sex Education. The show has been an international success and its third series is coming out soon. Laurie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. The show is so funny and warm and taboo breaking and clearly that awkward stage of life and the relationships of that time resonate with people everywhere. Having spoken to my friends, the general consensus seems to be that the UK standard of sex education is incredibly poor, typically very awkward, not informative and a bit scaremongering. And at my school, for example, I remember being shown a video of a girl who tried to give a blowjob but ended up with a dislocated jaw and another one of a singing penis. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not what they do. Um, So I wanted to ask you, what was your sex education like? Um, Yeah, mine was pretty abysmal. Um, (laughs) I went to school both in the UK and Australia and I went to um, quite a few different schools because my mum... My mom likes to move around a lot. Um, and pretty much at every school, the sex education was dreadful. I went to co-ed schools and single sex schools. And in the co-ed schools, they would split the boys and the girls up, you know, like once a year. And you'd have to kind of go off into a hall. And even that, when I think back on it now, it's like, it's just so counterintuitive. Like the idea that you're only supposed to learn about your own body rather than to learn about, you know, the opposite sex and, and the way mm. that that works. Yeah, and it was, I remember it being very sort of just soulless and very clinical, very fact-based, but not like not ever able to talk about emotions. And I think that when you're talking about sex, to not talk about the emotional aspect of sex or the emotional element of it feels mm. actually quite dangerous. So yeah, I think in many ways that's why when I'm writing the show, when I'm writing Sex Education, I, I'm always coming back to what did I need to know when I was sort of 15, 16, 17. And, uh, and to be honest, like I'm in my 30s now and I feel like I'm still being educated. And there's so many things that like I don't know about sex and I didn't even know about my own body and I'm still learning it now. And I think that that uh, really needs to change. Mm. And just out of curiosity, when when was this project kind of greenlit? Because obviously like after Me Too, we seem to have more stories about, about consent, about healthy relationships, about boundaries. I was wondering, how does sex education kind of fit into this Me Too timeline, if it does at all? Um, well, the show was actually conceived <laughs> quite a few years ago. So um, it was... The sort of seed of the idea came to me through a production company um, about five years ago. And I wrote a pilot script, um, which is actually pretty much the same as like the episode one that ended up getting shot for Netflix. And um, we shopped it around to like lots of different uh, channels and broadcasters. And um, it just no, it just didn't feel like the right fit at that time. And I think people didn't really know what it was and I think the fact that it's like comedy and drama people didn't really know what to do with it um and then I sort of thought it had just completely died and then somebody Netflix read it and it it came back to life and and got greenlit pretty fast and I think to be honest I think that the first time that we were shopping it around as an idea I don't think people were ready to have the kind of conversations that the show is having and I do think 
that is connected to like the Me Too movement in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. The whole Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal broke when I was in the writer's room for the second series, but series one had already been shot, but it hadn't been released on Netflix yet. And I remember thinking, whoa, this feels like a quite a sort of, almost like a, an earthquake had happened and, and yeah. women everywhere were just sort of, well, I don't know, it's funny because part of me thinks that it wasn't really a movement for women. I think it was a movement like to educate men in a lot of ways because I think women knew about all the problems to you know and had always known but suddenly we were able to talk about it um and I do think that that has just opened up so many other movements to be able to talk about things that are important and uh yeah and so therefore I think sex education just sort of like it all sort of came together at the right time and there was quite a lot of alchemy in terms of people being ready to to engage with it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I can kind of see what you're saying about Me Too being a movement to educate men, but I also think that that in so many ways that this movement has actually kind of provided a vocabulary for these experiences. And I think that similarly, what you're doing with the show is that you're just kind of providing a space to have these conversations. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the experience of writing sex education and how, relating to what we've just been talking about, how this kind of changes over the series to keep up with like kind of current conversations yeah um I think just going back to what I said before about always coming back to the idea of like what did I need to learn in school like that that is always um the anchor for me so that's always the first thing that I think about when I'm writing and then we have a writer's room um it's a very diverse room in terms of you know there's a wide spectrum of, of backgrounds and um identities sexualities so that is you know inevitably like very helpful because everybody's experience of school and also you know just being out in the world is very different so that kind of all goes into a big kind of boiling pot and the ideas come from that and then we've we work with a really fantastic um sex educator Mm -hmm. uh, called Alex Fox and she works as a consultant with the show and and I think that really helps us you know just I mean make sure that we're always putting forward the right information and, and healthy information but also keeping in tune with what young people today like really want to hear about or know about but yeah it's I mean it's consistently changing and sometimes I feel very old sometimes I'm like oh I don't know this feels like very out of my depth um but yeah the second series which came out around this time last year opens with an outbreak of chlamydia and everyone's running around wearing masks which to watch now it does just feel really weird of course at the school everyone is convinced that chlamydia is airborne and there's so much misinformation out there online about sex and our bodies and what is quote-unquote normal were there any storylines or subjects that you were particularly keen to missed in a way I think the show is like trying to do that through every episode it's trying to sort of take things that we think we know and then flipping them on their head and kind of looking at it from a different perspective and even with the characters you know we deal with a lot of sort of stock archetypes so we've got the the nerdy virgin we've got the black best friend we've got the bad girl the jock and it's sort of trying to like just get under the skin and sort of like look at these characters from you know, in a new way or from a different perspective. And I think in terms of actual sort of sex myths that I wanted to tackle, probably the main one for me, and it's, I think there is like a through line throughout the whole series is just to do with female pleasure and um, desire and, you know, really letting young women know that there's absolutely nothing shameful in masturbation. Or as Amy in the show, you know, she likes to call it having a wank. And I think that uh, there's nothing shameful in that and that we've got this amazing thing called a clitoris and we should like know about it. And I think schools should be teaching young women that 
they are allowed to have sexual autonomy and they're allowed to feel empowered within their bodies. And that shouldn't feel like, you know, a myth or something to bust, but I, I think it's still quite taboo and something that people feel squeamish about talking about and it just shouldn't be like that. Oh, definitely. And it was really interesting to see that portrayed on screen. I think it's Otis who says, oh, well, have you, you know, have you touched yourself? And she's like, oh no, I wouldn't do that. So yeah, it was quite a positive confrontation to see that on TV because I think that having had conversations like that with friends, that is definitely something we've all experienced too. And talking of Otis, I love his relationship with Eric, even though sometimes they're ill-informed there's no shame around sex and they're so accepting of one another, which is so refreshing. I wanted to know what was the inspiration behind this dynamic? Was it something that you felt was missing from other programs? Yeah, I think I wanted to create a male friendship that showed that boys can be open and honest and vulnerable with each other. Mm-hmm. I think that there's been a lot of kind of, you know, bromance films, um, which a lot of them I actually really love, but where young men are sort of portrayed as using banter and kind of slightly cruel humor to deflect away from vulnerability and I wanted to create a friendship that was a bit of an antidote to that and that showed that you know men are looking for connection as well and um yeah I think it's something I'm probably the most proud of in the show actually is is the relationship between Eric and Otis and I think they don't always get it right particularly Otis I think he's really struggling with the idea of like what it means to be a good man but um they really do love and care for each other and, um, and accept each other completely for who they are. And I, I mean, I hope that that's like a positive thing to sort of put forward on, on TV and to show that, yeah, boys have feelings too <laughs> and they can talk about them. <laughs> Definitely. I've not seen anything like it. And it is such a positive representation of male friendship, but also just healthy friendship and like you said actually really loving your friend which is really really sweet and being able to discuss everything yeah it makes my heart just sing um it makes you feel fuzzy it really <laughs> does it's definitely a fuzzy feeling the show feels like a perfect antidote to the naughtiest films and tv shows that facilitated and greenlit slut shaming in sex education we see a transition from the familiar territory of slut shaming with everyone calling emma mackie's character mave a cockbiter to the whole school standing up for a victim of revenge porn when everyone claims that the photo that's shared around is in fact of their vagina. And even though the photo is sent to everyone's phones, tech and social media don't really play a big role in the relationships in the show. And I just wanted to know what made you take a more timeless approach that kind of feels almost as though it's kind of pre-social media? Did you feel as though we kind of had enough awkward communication as teens and young adults as well um, without the help of social media? Yeah, um, I think... In a way, the sort of look and the feel of the show is a combination of the way that I write and the the sort of films and TV shows, also like YA books that really influenced me, which were things from the sort of like late 90s, like early Mm -hmm. noughties. You know, 10 Things I Hate About You is probably like one of the biggest um, references for me in terms of writing the show. And then when Ben Taylor, who's our director, came on board, all of his biggest influences were from his childhood and they were very much more like 80s sort of mm-hmm. John Hughes um things like you know Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club Ferris Bueller so it I think an amalgamation of those two things created the sort of feel and the tone of the show and I think we wanted to create something that felt very universal and, and felt like anyone who's been a teenager at any time can 
connect with this show and we didn't want it to be dominated by technology in that way I mean I think you can't have a show about teenagers without phones so they do use phones they text each other a lot but um you know it's also a show about honesty and communication and I wanted the characters to try and have as much like human interaction as possible Mm -hmm. which also feels really surreal now that we're in a pandemic and we live on screens <laughs> so yeah. hopefully uh if uh well when series three comes out people can kind of can be a bit of a fantasy to see all these characters like not being on zoom <laughs> yeah i know it'd probably be a bit a bit jarring do you think that we have too much like ordinarily speaking not in a pandemic there's too much reliance on tech in establishing relationships and just communicating to one another i think it's a really tricky question and i think sometimes i wonder because i am in my 30s whether it sort of shows shows my age a little bit because I do find it all a little bit scary and a little bit alienating um, because I think I definitely grew up in a time where I didn't have any of that and then I you know when I was like sort of at university was when sort of Facebook sort of started to happen so I I definitely really remember what it was like to not have my life kind of um, controlled by technology and I'm wary of kind of you know being like anti-social social media because I think maybe younger people have a different relationship to it mm-hmm. than me but I do think that we can feel like we're more connected than ever mm-hmm. but I also have noticed that I think a lot of people feel quite lonely and quite isolated and that there is something very healing about actually having a conversation with a real person in the flesh and like you know feeling the body language and and being able to kind of you know just navigate that in the real world and I think that um technology just doesn't allow you it kind of it removes the nuance at times Mm. so yeah but I think there's pros and cons the me too movement is a good example I don't think that that would have happened without you know the power of social media so yeah the negatives yeah, completely. Hearing you talk about university kind of pre-social media takeoff just sounds so idyllic. It's just really lovely to see kind of more human to human interaction in sex education. And I think, yeah, it will definitely be more appreciated now in the pandemic, I think. And um, Or yeah. weird. People are just going to watch the show and be like, why is no one wearing a mask? <laughs> yeah, why are they hugging one another? Yeah, yeah, it could go either way. Um, but I'm sure that people will enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, I just wanted to briefly talk about the assault that Amy experiences on the bus in series two. It captures the shock and the distrust that so many of us are unfortunately familiar with after sexual harassment and sexual assault. And what I loved, like absolutely loved about this storyline is the solidarity from all the other girls in school and helping her get back on the bus and kind of reclaiming that space and also just rather brilliantly releasing all of this frustration by smashing up things in a junkyard which is just like tv gold like it was so cathartic to watch that because ultimately that's what we all want to do can you possibly tell us about the backstory to this plot yeah um so uh, amy's storyline in in series two was very personal to me i um was sexually assaulted on my local bus a few years ago. It must have been maybe four years ago now. And it was, yeah, just a very, very upsetting sort of experience that I went through. Sadly, not a uncommon one. I was traveling to um, Edinburgh to see um, an ex-boyfriend. It was the morning. I was like really excited about my trip and I had my headphones on. I was like very in my own sort of world. And then this man sort of cornered me on the bus and um you know was 
being very frightening and you know rubbing himself on me and just being uh horrendous a horrendous human being and you know I very much went into like fight or flight and I managed to get off the bus um and you know I shook it off in that like sort of first instance but it just really stayed with me and then I ended up finding it very difficult to get on public transport for a few months afterwards um until I was able to get some help and like talk through you know why I was feeling that way and I think that I knew that I wanted to write about it you know sadly it wasn't like the the first thing in that kind of realm that had like uh happened to me I think when you're female you're sort of navigating those kind of events all the time Mm -hmm. um and but for some reason this particular one just it just I think it was because it was the morning and and I I usually would have felt safe and then suddenly it just it just really shook my foundations and so I knew I wanted to talk about it um but I didn't really know how and then I realized that Amy as a character is she's such a sort of innocent creature in a way and she's like so optimistic and and sunny and just sees the best in people and the best in the world and even though it's a horrible thing she was the perfect vehicle to explore something like sexual assault because that event that happens to her completely changes her and, and turns her into a very very different young woman than she was before and I um I knew that she was the right person to take on that journey um and it's interesting with the the junk yard stuff because that also came from quite a personal thing for me that there's a place in Melbourne in Australia which is where my mum lives it's where I spent my teenage years and um it's called the break room and it's basically like you go and they give you a baseball bat and then they dress you in like a little kind of hazmat suit and like a you know like a visor and then you can play any music that you want I played Katy Perry and Britney Spears and then you just go into this room and you just smash up like old crockery computers and you pay per like 15 minutes so it depends how long you want to be there apparently some women go in there for hours (laughs) <laughs> when I really got some stuff to work through um and I found it like incredibly cathartic I also found it quite um confronting and quite frightening because I realized that I was holding on to I mean it wasn't specifically about what had happened to me on the bus mm. I think it was just life in general but I realized that um I was quite afraid of that emotion I was quite afraid of like letting out anger or rage um and I think that women are taught it's a very ugly thing and that we shouldn't engage with it whereas I think men are maybe not encouraged to engage with it but it's not it's not sort of seen as as such a bad thing and I just I thought there was something very interesting about that feeling and that emotion and I wanted to capture that in the show and I thought that Amy really tapping into oh I'm not really feeling sad I keep crying but I don't think I'm actually sad I think I'm fucking angry Mm. I don't know it just felt like the right way to go with her but she's still very much on a journey I don't think that journey is completely over for her yet the end of the series is when we kind of see her begin to feel comfortable with the guy that she's seeing again yeah I can't wait to see how how that develops obviously I'm so sorry that happened to you because that's such like no one should have to deal with it that's just it's just shit and I think that it's so generous of you to portray that in this program and to highlight how it shouldn't be a universal experience and in regards to that what is it called the break room break room yeah that sounds amazing I'm like why do we not have anything like that over here we might do but like I doubt it that just sounds too cool yeah I've actually been thinking I'm like if series three is a failure I think I'm just gonna set up my own break room because I think women need it (laughs) we need a break room 
After the pandemic, yeah. Everyone's going to let out like all their frustration at like the government and like being cooped up and yeah. Oh my goodness, like series three, there's no way on earth that's not going to be a success. Like that's ridiculous. Like no. Fingers crossed. (laughs) And just touching on what you just said about Amy trying to figure out how she's feeling and tapping into that female rage. Post Me Too, we are seeing more more realistic female characters. How does female rage kind of play into sex education? Because arguably, like Maeve Wiley, one of the, like the hard girls, I can't even say it, we're like, <laughs> you know, she does tap into that anger. So yeah, how does female rage kind of play into the series? I think it's, I think anger is something that I'm, I'm very fascinated with. And I, I think quite a lot of the characters are struggling with it in one way or another. And I think part of that is that being a teenager is just a very like angst ridden time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that boys are struggling with it because, you know, you're confused, you're like hormonal, you're, you know, scared about what's going to happen in your future, like whether you're going to turn out okay. There's like so many complicated emotions going on. So I feel like yeah. anger is something that for me anyway I feel like is quite connected to the teenage experience but maybe it like comes out in in um, different ways and yeah I think quite a lot of the female characters are probably quite angry underneath it but I also think it's interesting to think about I guess it's going to get to a point where like we're not going to want to just keep seeing stories where women just lose their shit and smash things so I think it's also like for me I think where I'm interested in what's going to happen with storytelling like over the next few years after this moment where like we've all been able to suddenly like unleash our real feelings and tell the truth and tap into that rage like then then what's next like where are the characters going to go in film and tv after that I think that's probably going to be where the most interesting work gets created but yeah I guess we'll have to wait and see yeah that's really interesting I've not even I've not even considered that because I think that we're still living through this post meeting moment if you want to call it that yeah that would be really fascinating actually and what's really powerful about sex education is that it presents people articulating how they feel as you mentioned earlier and learning to assert boundaries and feel confident in their own bodies so we see this with Amy and also Eric in so many ways god it's just heartbreaking this scene but after being beaten up at the bus stop for where quote-unquote women's clothes he manages to find a way to kind of build up the confidence to express himself fully again but kind of alongside this he's also got this on-off relationship with Adam who also bullies him and is abusive and I'd be really interested to hear your take on this presentation of an unhealthy relationship and I think that definitely um, during teen years and some people probably at different stages of their lives but um, definitely in teenage years it's, it's easier to accept being mistreated or don't realize that that's necessarily a problem yeah I think that with Adam and Eric I again was interested in exploring a trope that has been done many many times which is the idea of somebody who's you know closeted in terms of their sexuality and therefore is is taking those emotions out on somebody else in a very like negative or abusive way and I sort of wanted to like dig a bit deeper into that because I think quite often with those storylines it sort of it reaches climax and they the characters get together and then they sort of like run off into the daisies and 
and it's like all sort of forgotten and I've always known that this relationship between Adam and Eric is not an easy one and it's like very complicated and I found it quite difficult actually and when the first series was released there was um quite a lot of critique about the way that you know episode eight had ended with Adam and Eric you know hooking up and for me I sort of felt like I, I, I could understand the critique, but I also felt like the story's not over yet. And I sort of wanted people to be a little bit patient and sort of see <laughs> how how we were gonna like continue to explore that. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that Adam is the the healthiest choice um, for Eric, but I also think that that's something that Eric needs to work through for himself. And I also think that Adam, you know, he's done some terrible things, but I don't think that he should be sort of judged for that for the rest of his life. I think that it's very much my outlook that people can change and can kind of grow. And I hope that their relationship will like allow them both to kind of grow and change for the better. But I was very interested in kind of really looking at the complexities of that dynamic of what it means to you know now be in a relationship with somebody that didn't treat you very well and I think that um I wouldn't say that their relationship like has continued to be abusive but it started out in a very negative way and therefore that's going to have consequences and that makes really good drama um, Mm -hmm. as well as uh you know hopefully will you know let younger people sort of take something from that as well and maybe see the red flags Mm -hmm. um, earlier on. Is there anything you can tell us about season three? I know it's coming out some point this year. Well, so we are, we're still in production, Mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of a miracle because I think obviously for everyone, you know, 2020 was just, I don't know, what was 2020? 2020 was a nightmare. Now 2021 and we're still in a nightmare. So it's, um, yeah, so the fact that we're still shooting is incredible and hopefully the show will come out onto Netflix later this year. I can't say too much. We've got a couple of new characters and I think I think thematically we're sort of, I think the characters are all growing a little bit. They're getting mm-hmm. older. They're sort of getting towards the end of their like school experience mm-hmm. and really like starting to feel that pressure of like, what am I going to be? What kind of person am I going to be? I'm also very interested in shame and teenage shame. So there's some mm-hmm. themes in there about that. But also there's a lot of like really ridiculous um penis jokes so hopefully people will find that funny as well (laughs) do you think this will be like the final series um I love writing the characters I feel very attached to them I mean they they haunt me they're in my dreams it's crazy like I just sort of I know I mean a lot of writers are a little bit mad but um yeah I sort of carry them around with me all the time and I feel very connected to them and I want to keep writing them so yeah I think if we're lucky enough and Netflix wants to keep making the show I think we've definitely got more stories to tell tell Netflix (laughs) to keep to keep making the show (laughs) and how has making the show made you feel more optimistic about the tv and film industry and the kind of stories we tell uh I think that I don't know whether it's like in the context of me making the show um but I have definitely noticed that the tv landscape is like really really changing and changing very quickly and I think that um there's been so many more like diverse stories stories by women you know lgbtq Mm -hmm. stories it feels like there's just like a breadth of of material out there and I think a lot of that is I think there's like an appetite for it and I think that there's been these huge very public like movements like I think Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement has um, really helped that but then I also think because of all the streaming platforms there's just more opportunity to take risks on newer voices but I also think that we shouldn't rest on our laurels because I think when you do look at the statistics that you know 
it's still very white and very male mm -hmm. and we've got to kind of keep fighting to to have like other stories from other perspectives told but I do think it's a really exciting time for TV. On a final note is there any advice that you would give to your younger self about either sex education or boundaries or feeling comfortable in your own skin to like your teenage young adult self? What would I say to my younger self? When I was younger and this maybe again is like a generational thing but I was so like worried about fitting in and being normal and you know I was always the girl that like I didn't have a boyfriend everyone else had a boyfriend and I didn't have a boyfriend and I was like a late bloomer and I was always so stressed about that and uh and worried about it and I think now I look back and I'm like oh in a way like that was such a free time and I think that uh I just wish I hadn't have been so stressed about it because also like I look back at myself and I'm like you were pretty cool like you should have just like liked yourself a lot more and I think that a lot of young people are so hard on themselves, particularly young women and like the pressure to, you know, be perfect or normal, whatever the hell that means. I just wish that, yeah, I mean, definitely for myself, I wish I could have like released some of that and just liked myself a bit more, I think would have been helpful. But, you know, you live, you learn. Laurie, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. you've been listening to recognize read the podcast i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did please review and subscribe to hear more